<laughs> I was reviewing your video in chipmunk mode. <laughs> <laughs> Watch, watching you um, gesture with your arms was a particular <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com newrelic. This episode is sponsored by the Ultimate DevOps Academy. They will be taking a complete Rails app through the entire automation staff. Complete configuration management, CI, auto-deploy, auto-scale, and at the end you'll have a top-to-bottom setup with all the tools for running a fully integrated production environment. The course has a live interactive webcast for instruction, but everything is recorded so you can work through it all at your own pace and save materials for later use. Plus, there will be lots of Q&A, help sessions, labs, etc. to ensure success for everyone. Go sign up at ultimatedevops.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 115 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Hello from Insomnia. Josh Susser. Uh, Hello from uh, San Francisco, that suburb of Insomnia. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week we have a special guest, and that is Jessica Kerr. Hello from St. Louis. You want to introduce yourself really quickly since you haven't been on the show before? Sure. So I'm a Java developer for 12 years, and more recently I do Scala in my day job. But at home, given the choice of what language to play around in, I like Ruby. So since I'm learning Scala and working in Scala these days, I'm very into functional programming. And Ruby, I think, is really well-suited to functional programming, and it's the functional style has a lot to offer Ruby. And I really wanted to speak at Ruby conferences because... So when I went to CodeMash and some of the more general conferences, I learned that Ruby people are by far the most awesome. So I learned Ruby and talked about functional programming in Ruby. And I think I think it's resonated with the community, which is why uh, James Edward Gray asked me to be on the show. So I'm very excited. Yeah, and, and I know that James is extremely disappointed that uh, his travel schedule didn't let him be here while you were on the show. So so let me just whine on his behalf. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> You're good at that, Josh. <laughs> lots, of, lots, lots of practice. That's <laughs> um, great. So, so Jessica, James and I and a couple of people saw your video from Ruby Midwest that you did early this year, and James is like, okay, we got to get Jessica on the show. And I'm like, okay, i got to get Jessica speaking at Gogoruko, but you're at Strange Loops, so oh well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, I was really disappointed it was the same day, and then and then I told some of my Ruby friends, and they were like, oh my god, you could have speaking at Gogoruko, what are you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, listen to your friends next time. <laughs> but, and anyway, the, the, the video was great, and I want to say that the, I've seen a fair number of talks that are about OOP and functional programming and comparing and contrasting. And yours is the first talk that I've seen that is less about who would win in a fight and more about how, <laughs> what, what can we learn from functional programming that can make our object-oriented programs better. Right, so, right. So, so great job. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, we love yeah, all those talks where people go, mutable state, ah! <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, I totally wanted to do that. I totally wanted to have a, this is how you should do immutable things in Ruby. And then I tried it and it was so hard. I decided, no, <laughs> no, you shouldn't try. I mean, by all means, don't mutate things in Ruby, but trying to make it impossible to mutate them. I mean, Ruby as a language, it's like the whole thing. If you have an omnipotent God, can he make a rock that he cannot lift? Well, if, if Ruby is the God, no, you can't make a rock that you cannot lift. You just choose not to lift it. That's an okay. excellent analogy. Yes. <laughs> the, the, um, it, but can you make a God object that is so big that it can't contain itself? Sorry. Okay, now we're going <laughs> really meta. You can run out of memory. <laughs> yeah, well, it, if you think about when they invented object-oriented programming in, I guess, the 70s, Functional programming had been around for a decade or so at that point, and they decided, oh, there's something we need to invent. You know, we need to invent this new thing because the way we're doing stuff in functional programming isn't really working out for us in all the ways we want it to. So, it's, I, I think the world was not ready for functional programming back yeah. then. Well, I, I I think that there were things that were problems with it that they solved in a particular way with object-oriented programming, and now it's decades later and everybody's advanced more. So I think there, you know, it's, it's definitely, there's a lot to learn on both sides, I think. And absolutely. And absolutely. I, and I, oh, it yeah. was totally useful. So, yeah. I, so I like these, uh, like synergy kind of viewpoints and, you know, I like that you had just a small number of points that, you know, made a, you know, I thought made a really good story. So, so do we want to talk about some of those points or is you had like data in, data out functions or data errors or data, but nil sure. is not. <laughs> the, right. Oh, the nil point was such a good point. Yeah. So, so, uh, so, so this data in, data out. I think that's what most people think about when they when they think about functional programming. I think that is the most important part. I think that is the meaning of functional programming, from what I've grasped of it so far, and I'm not an expert. But the idea that a function is evaluated to its return value, and that's all it does. I think of it as evaluation over execution. So if you have like a subroutine, meaning a method that has some side effects that affects the outside world, it writes to a database or it prints to the console or it reads some input, that is executed, right? And one statement after another is executed and things happen in particular order and that's important. As opposed to a data in, data out function, it accepts its input, it produces its output, and it doesn't do anything in between. So you can call it once with the same input and output and just substitute that from then on. Or you can call it a million times. From the outside world, you can't tell a difference. And that is evaluation. Um, it's like simplification in an algebra sense. And when you think of programs in those terms as data being flowing through functions that evaluate it into more and more interesting data and eventually into information, you get a different view of the program than if you look at it from the outside and see the order of its effects on the outside world, which is an execution perspective. And it all starts with those data in, data out functions that don't affect anything around them. Okay. Great point. Yeah. The one thing that... The <laughs> It really hit home for me when you were talking about, it really hit home for me when, when you were talking about the different kinds of functions where you have the functional, you know, data in, data out and no side effects. And then you have the one where 
you call in and it changes the state of the world or the object somehow. And then you have the other one where it uh, effectively poops out some side effect, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's too bad David's not here because he 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 could have run with that in ways I yeah. can't even imagine. But yeah, that function crapped all over my data structure. <laughs> but well, that's what it was supposed to do. But yeah, I mean, I realize that I do blend a lot of those a lot of times in a method or a or you know what have you you know a proc or whatever and um, splitting it off like that so that I know that it's it's a no side effect. I put this in, I get this out. Those are extremely easy to test. And then the rest yes. of it is just instrumenting. But if you're doing that, I think you said that 95% of the time, it's just a data in, data out problem anyway. And uh, so it you can simplify 95% of your code by moving the side effects into something that gets called, you know, somewhere in the chain, but only where you need it to occur. And then you can test the rest of it in isolation and make sure that it does exactly what it's supposed to do and not worry about how it's affecting the, the state of things. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, in my my current software I'm working on right now, I'm doing exactly that. We're we're writing a data converter pipeline, and it's really great writing all the little conversion steps as functional pieces. Sweet. Yeah. So it, it makes them easy to test in isolation, and you know it's 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 really easy because you know we're converting stuff from one database to another database, which is all about side effects, which would make it really hard to test all the pieces if we were always having to be coupled to the database. But we can test all those little pieces in isolation, and it's really fast. So, yay. So uh, I guess I have a couple of questions here. One is, is a lot of times I'll have objects where I'm calling whatever it is that, you know, transforms the input into the output. But the input is actually some state in my object. So for in the Rails example, you know, you have your attributes and... Sometimes it's like a phone number and I've stripped all the non-numeric characters out. But when I want it back, you know, I want it to put the parentheses and or the dashes or whatever into it. And so I'm not actually changing the state of the attribute, but it is actually, you know, printing out the string that I need for the phone number. Does that qualify in your mind as the functional sort of thing? Or since it's not, you know, directly taking an input as a parameter, but rather is pulling something off the state of the object, is that less functional? Well, you, you can find a functional piece in there. In that case, I like to make a little method called format phone number or whatever, and from within the object that contains the phone number attribute, pass the attribute into the format phone number method, and then get back the formatted string with the parentheses. And that way, it's like that method could be on the object without passing any parameters into it. But if you put it on there, and maybe you have a different property that, that wraps it, but one way or another, you have a functional method that accepts the phone number as a parameter, and you explicitly pass it in, it makes it a little more clear what that function is doing. Then you can test that function. You could put it in some other module if you wanted and test it without having the whole big object with a phone number attribute. So I think there's a functional component in there, but only if you call that out into a separate method into which you pass the phone number. I guess, so, okay. I yeah. guess my next question is, and you know, you guys are free, feel free to chime in on this too, but then that job of that function isn't necessarily part of the job of the class that that object belongs to. So then should it be called out into its own module? You can. Um, if you ever use it anywhere else, then you totally should. The part of the value of making it functional in that way, of making it accept input, is that you have the option of calling it out. Mm -hmm. 
if this is the only place you ever use it, then you don't have to give yourself that overhead. But there is value in moving it out as soon as you could use it from another place. Yeah, that makes sense. And you see that a, a bit, or, or maybe a lot even, in uh, sort of like functional object-oriented languages. Like, yeah, I guess maybe even Scala has something like this. I, I'm not too familiar with Scala. But where you can grab a method Definite, you know, a, a method implementation oh, yeah. that's just sitting around and then bind it to an object. And in, in a functional world where, you know, where functions are all just data in, data out, and they don't have to worry about external state, then binding a method into an object is something that's totally reasonable because it's never going to do anything to the internal state of the object. It's just a convenient place to attach the method. Oh, right. And, and you get the invisible parameter this when you yes. have a method. Right. Or self in Ruby? No. Yeah, self in Ruby. Yeah. So, 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 given you know, given that perspective, that sort of binding makes sense. And, and uh, Avdi has um, has uh, I think uh, done a, a lot of crazy stuff around how to find methods in in method dictionaries and bind them into other objects and things, um, which always makes me cringe when I see it. But, um, <laughs> well, <I do. laughs> but yeah. yeah, yeah. Does it make the code more clear? It's always a question to ask. Yes. I don't really like to use the invisible parameter of self. I like to explicitly pass in the fields that I need. That way it's clear which fields that method needs access to. And if you ever split that class up into um, multiple classes, then you know where that method belongs and which fields are necessarily together. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, so um, I want to ask about, there's a, a concept in OOP where we talk about command versus query methods. Are, are you familiar with that? Is that like ask versus tell? Yeah, very much. It's just, you know, you have, um, the, the, it, and uh, we talked about this about, or we talked about this with Sandy Metz when she was on the show about how it's, it's useful to distinguish between methods that can modify state in the object and methods that you, know, you can call them any number of times and they do, and all they do is return the same value. So, you know, they, they don't have any well, side now effects. You have a distinction there. there you have a yeah. distinction there. You, yeah. There's two kinds of methods that you can call any number of times. One well, that will yes. return the same value at all times, and one that will return whatever value is right, currently right, in yeah. the state of the object. Okay. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so you have the query methods, which all they do is return is return a value. They don't side effect anything. So, right. I so, like so, movies. So, like yeah, anyway, just just yeah. like one one of the side effects is that is they're item potent. You can just keep calling them forever. Yeah. So, so sorry, keep going. <laughs> okay, yeah, they're item potent, but they're not refer- not necessarily referentially transparent if it's a mutable object. Right. Can, can you define referential um, transparency? Yes, that's a great question because I'm sorry I used that phrase that, but you started it with item potent. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, I'll define item. Those are two of the words. <laughs> okay. So I'll define item potent if you define command, yeah, referential transparency. Referential transparency. Deal. Deal. But first I'm going to complain about these words because one of the evils of functional programming, in my opinion, is it's, it takes all these, these words like referentially transparent and monad and first class and there's, but those are actually the pretty minor ones. Heaven forbid you get into the bind and return methods inside of Monad, which do nothing like what we think of binding or returning. They're in there. These terms exist for historical reasons that come out of math. And if you don't approach functional programming from a category theory perspective, 
then these words just get in our way. So data in, data out functions are both idempotent and referentially transparent. What referentially transparent means is at any point where you see a function call, you could immediately substitute the output of that function for those inputs right in the code there, and it wouldn't make any difference. If the function had some effect, like printing to the console or printing to the log, that would not be the case because it would matter whether you actually called the function or just got its return value. So referentially transparent functions, it doesn't care whether it actually calls the function or if it just happens to know the right return value for that input and substitutes it. So if you if you move the call to print to the log, for example, out to its own function, then what's left could be referentially transparent because it has no side effect at that point. And yes. so all it does is return a value. Yes, and the same value for the same input every time. Right. Well, that's that's uh, that's idempotence, isn't it? Where you put the same thing in, you get the same thing out, regardless of state. That that's a question for Josh. Oh, so um, so definition, definition, Josh. Yeah, yeah. So idempotence is that you can keep doing the same operation on the same data. Right. Okay. And and it won't ever change. So. Uh, taking the absolute value of a positive number is an idempotent operation because it, it's always a positive. It's always the same positive number that gets returned. Mm. So having f- functional qu- like query methods on objects are, but by de- they're by definition they're idempotent because they're always operating on the same input state. Therefore, they'll always return the same output state. But probably I, I they're only idempotent from the perspective that they're working on this on the same self you know the same object Mm -hmm. because the data that's flowing in is not the data that's flowing out for the most part right you know if you're trying to reform sorry i was just saying if you oh well the um so the in general i don't think it's a it's a like terribly useful thing to keep in mind as you're as you're programming up uh you know uh uh productivity apps or websites (laughs) it's you know it's yeah the um I know that the chef guys, you know, from you know, they talk a lot about item potence in their in their server configuration operations. So they say, "Oh, I can run this configuration, you know, recipe, or I guess that's what they call them. Mm-hmm. It's all it's yeah, all cooking, right? <laughs> I can run a configuration recipe in this cookbook, and it will always have the same result. And and even if I, even if nginx is already installed on the server, if I run the install nginx recipe, it will leave the system alone. It won't, it it converges on one thing. It won't mess it up once you've gotten to where you want to be. So I think from your understanding and mine, although I don't guarantee mine is completely mathematically accurate, idempotency means you can call it over and over and over again and not worry about that. Well, referential transparency says you don't have to call it over and over and over again if you've cached the result. Right. Yes. From an OOP perspective, the referential transparency thing is pretty cool because you can automatically memoize anything that's referentially transparent. I love the word memoize, except that it's incredibly hard to type in anything with autocorrect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, there should be a whole website just devoted to uh, memoize autocorrect, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so, so if people are not familiar with memoize, it's uh, the easiest way to think of it in Ruby is you have an instance variable and then pipe pipe equal, you know, the or equals operator, and then some calculation. And that's ah, that okay. would be the, the easy Ruby implementation. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm typing this into the chat room so it'll show up in the notes. 
in Java, I would see it at um, Memoize is easy, most easily implemented with the Guava cache builder, which is um, a map or dictionary that will calculate its values based on its keys, but it only calculates them once and then it caches them. So Memoize just saves the result for a particular input and then you never have to calculate it again. Yeah, that's the idea. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so, so you had a bunch of other things in your talk as well. You know, functions are data, errors are data, nil is not data. Yeah, can I lead into that with memoization? If you memoize something as false with that or or equal, that pipe pipe uh, uh, equal. Well, no, that's well, not going to work. That's not yeah. going to work in Ruby. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. And, and, and part of that is because we use nil and false interchangeably among nil being, you know, used to substitute for other meanings. I, I really like that point in your slides. The point where nil means a million different things, therefore uh-huh. it means nothing? Yeah. Yeah, that one. <laughs> or, or at least nothing yeah, in particular. Right, right. You can't be sure what it means because it means something different in every context and to everybody. And it could mean one of two different things in the same context a lot of times. That's something I've really picked up from Scala. And even when I go back and do Java or Ruby, well, Ruby has those symbols, which are awesome. But I always try to return something meaningful instead of null. Mm-hmm. Right. Good so, for well, you. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's basically the entire point of the Confident Ruby book that I'm just finishing up is stop using null for everything because it has zero outside of it's, it, it's, it's, its meaning is entirely contextual. If you want to know what it means. Null. Yeah, if it has any at all. I mean, it might not have any, you know, it might be accidental, but I mean, if it has any meaning at all, you have to go read the documentation to find out what nil means in this context because it means about 15 different things depending on 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 where you're at. Yeah. And 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 it's usually It's so easy to accidentally propagate. Mm. Yes. And, yeah, and and usually the thing the the number one thing that that using nil does is it introduces conditionals in the code that consumes it. So Do you think conditionals are evil? No, well, they're not necessarily evil, but they make a lot of code more difficult to um, to work with in, in that it's harder to refactor and harder to tease apart into separate responsibilities. Hmm. Oh, conditionals. We tend to replace those in pattern matching with functional programming, but mm-hmm. that's not really any different. It's just a lot prettier. Yeah. It, so in, in OOP, we replace conditionals with polymorphism. And, and that's... Right. That's... Not really any different either. It's just prettier in that it's easier to separate the pieces that you want to use independently in maybe different classes or inherit separately. So the it's uh, you know, like a, a, I was looking at some code like this yesterday where we had a case statement that did a bunch of things depending on what was in a string. But the strings were very regular, so it was like, oh, we can just take the last word in the string and send that as a message to self. And then what we have is a bunch of small methods that in subclasses are easy to override in different ways. So that was, you know, we, now we could have done that by pulling all those little bits out of the case statement and turning them into methods, even without getting rid of the case statement. But then all the logic for how you do these things is buried in that case statement in the superclass, and then a subclass that wanted to do things a little different might have a lot more trouble. But God, I hate talking about code over the air. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> yeah. How to, how to obscure understanding... <laughs> <laughs> but so what about uh, the thing that I really liked is you said errors are data and that's I think yes. a, a, 
that's an an uncommon perspective. So I'd love to hear more about that. I think I wrote a book on that. Yes. One. <laughs> Only one. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> anyway, you were saying. Um, okay, so errors are data, right? There's this tendency in programming, well, and and in all of life, really, to say we will prevent failures from happening. We will not let them happen. We will fix all the things, and our program will be perfectly under our control. And that's just not how the world works. It's not even how computers work. So in general, when we don't have control, just let go and instead get visibility, get reporting, find out when, when things are happening in the way you don't want. And once you have that metric, then you can influence the system that you don't have control over. It totally works with people, like in some issue tracking systems. Um, the management will say, oh, well, you must not be able to enter an issue unless it has a sponsor and a customer and blah, 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 blah. Well, okay, now I'm just going to do the work without entering the issue. If instead you let me track my work without jumping through a bunch of hoops for a sponsor that I'm not going to go get right now and instead track that and measure how many people are working on something that doesn't have a sponsor, then you can influence this. You can make it part of people's reviews. You can go get the sponsor yourself. So in a way, when we ignore errors or just blow up when they happen, we're losing information that can help us make the system better. That was kind of a tangent. But it's one I feel strongly about. No, I, th- no, I think that's a, that's a cool, cool way of looking at that. Given our, uh, our last segment of conversation, um, I take it you, you think that rescue nil is evil? What does rescue nil do? Uh, rescue catches an exception and then returns nil. It throws away an exception. Yeah. Oh, and, that's and, and terrible. Then, and then reassigns uh, the the value as nil. Yes, that's evil. That's horrible. <laughs> you must hate everyone who uses your code. In Java, it's it's the empty catch block is the same yeah. effect. Yeah. And I it's get really equivalent. pissed when I see one of those, too. It's, it's interesting. I, I mean, I think we need... I think we need some better either some better practices or some better constructs um, for failure handling in Ruby. Um, you know, I wrote exceptional Ruby and the more time that goes by since then, the more I want to revisit some of that stuff and, and talk more about, you know, these philosophies, of what to do with errors. Because one thing I see a lot of, maybe I don't, I don't know where you fall on this is I see a lot of either or, especially in like language, language design discussions, a lot of either or, you know, errors, Errors should be return values, and they should be. You should just be checking your return values, and maybe the language should force you to ret- check your return values, um, which I've yet to see a language that actually does that, as opposed to claiming it does that. But anyway, you know, versus errors should be exceptions. Period. And and I mean, for me, it's it's a much more contextual thing. I mean, if my method, if I'm not sure in a method that an error is, if I'm not sure what to do with an error, I'm not absolutely sure what to do with one. Maybe it's it's going to depend on where my method's being called. Then I want to provide a way to return that, inf- you know, return information in some form about that condition uh, without necessarily forcing an exception. Uh, but on the other hand, if I am at the level that knows exactly what to do in a particular situation, then you know, and I know that it's potentially fatal, then I do want to raise an exception. So right, I agree. Exceptions are for exceptional occurrences that we don't expect anybody to be able to recover from. Yeah, but it's very, very important to make a distinction there. Um, I mean, you know, I, we all say that, but it's it's important to make this distinction that 
an exceptional like it depends on your context it depends on on the level of the of the abstraction that you're in i mean at one level something may be you know at a a, a low level system call that opens a file it is a perfectly ordinary circumstance for that file not to be found it's not you know that's not an error that's just like one of the possible outcomes of that system call at a high level in your application where your the application is starting up and there is a mandatory configuration file that it opens and reads if that mandatory configuration file is not there that is an exceptional circumstance and it's you know it's worth killing the program over because it can't go any further let's let's say in this particular application so it's it's like you know a missing file it's both a uh you know, an ordinary circumstance and an exceptional circumstance, depending on the level of, of abstraction that you're at. Yes, and I think that the file opening routine there should be returning the piece of information because when the program is trying to open its configuration file and it's not found, what happens should not be letting an exception propagate from lower down that just says file not found, blah, 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 blah. No, the information that the user needs to recover from that error is not in the file opening routine. It's in the configuration file accessing routine. And right. that needs to throw an exception because it is not recoverable. And that exception needs to say, I am unable to run without a configuration file. This is where you should get it. And it's called blah, blah, blah. Actually, information that the user can yeah. use. Yeah. And it's it's tough, though, because... If that uh, system call, let's say that there are several levels of call in between that top-level startup code and that system call. If the system call doesn't raise an exception, then there's a chance that important information about the error may be lost along the way as those intermediate uh, methods don't bother to pass it along. Oh, this is where you get into the either idea. When the default error handling method for me is either is I'm going to return you something or I'm going to give you an error. And the nice thing about those is, at least in Scala, and of course it can be implemented in Ruby, um, it can propagate up very much like an exception with, with only very minor generic code in each of the methods in between. So if you get an either back from something and you return an either to your caller, then all you do is, well, the functional term, which I don't like, is a map um, on the data value in that either that continues your processing. But if you got an error in the either, and oh my gosh, you're right, I totally need a slide for this. If you got an error, then it just passes right back up to the function it calls you. Not unlike exceptions, except it's using the regular stack. And every level in the layers of calls on the way down has the opportunity, not the obligation, but the opportunity to add information to the error that was returned. Yeah, definitely. So I have a question that will change the topic. Is there any more you guys have to say on this before I ask my next question? Go for errors it. Errors are not evil. Embrace them. <laughs> errors are not evil? Right, right. Okay. Embrace them. Embrace failure. There we go. Learn from it. Yep. So my next question is, um, in your talk, and I know you only had a half hour, so you know you could really only give the one example with MapReduce. Are there other examples of good ways to use functional programming in Ruby other than uh, transforming data? It's a good question. The, the collections 
methods of the internal iterators of map and reduce and filter are the easy wins. They're the easy, look, you can pass a function as a value and it does this. There's a lot more. I don't know where to point you to examples on Ruby yet, but passing functions as values, it's like the strategy pattern in OO is really painful in Java until we get Java 8 and then we have lambdas. And then suddenly passing how to do something becomes really easy. In Ruby, it's already pretty easy. And you have the, the idiom of blocks and you do that some. So really it's a matter of once you really get your head around map and filter and the idea of passing the how, opportunities crop up. But no, I'm sorry, I don't have any examples to point you to. That's okay. You're, you're leading into the other question that I have. And that is, uh, in your talk, you said that you can do functional programming in Ruby if you use lambdas and call rather than yeah. yield uh, with blocks or procs. And I'm wondering, what is the difference between lambdas and procs that make it so that one is more functional than the other? I mean, I, I understand some of the differences between lambdas and procs, but I, I can't really point to one and say, this has got to be what she's talking about. So I wrote this up in a blog post right before Ruby Midwest. And then, and then since then, I've, I've forgotten it to make room for other things. But in, in the end, blocks, shoot. No, I'd have to reference my blog post. I can jump in here if you want. Sweet. This is, so th so awesome. there's only a few differences between uh, what we call blocks, procs, and lambdas. That Blocks and procs are basically the same thing. Although um, I think uh, procs will check arity on the inputs and, and regular blocks won't. Uh, but, a, but a proc is just basically a block turned into an object that you can point at. Uh, a lambda is very similar, but the big difference is that uh, lambdas, you can return from them any number of times because a lambda always returns from itself to the point where it was called. A block or... A Sorry, a lambda gets a layer on the stack, right? Well, okay, so a block... Or, or proc, they're basically synonyms for each other. Uh, they op, they can, they carry along the execution context of the place where they were declared, like the, 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 the actual method where you wrote the, the curly braces or the do end for that block. That never really goes away when you've passed a block out of it. And when you return from the block, you're actually jumping, you're saying, I want to return from the method where I was defined and here, here's the return value. So that's what happens when you put a break or a return or whatever in the in a block. It's operating within the context of the method where it was defined. Whereas a lambda is more like a, a full-fledged method that just happens to be anonymous. And when you return from it, it's returning to the place where it got called, not the place where the method that defined it was called. That's a great description. Thanks. So, so it's execution context, but they're both still closures, right? So they both still contain the context of everything that's outside of it. It's just that... The where it's executing it, the proc returns the for the method that that called it, and in the other case, it returns to the method that called it. Yes. Okay. Right. And yeah. And and blocks are are kind of a hack. They <laughs> they uh yeah they're not they're not like super functional. In, you know, like Jessica said, they break a lot of your ideas about I guess referential transparency. So. You can't substitute the return value of a block for a block because it, it can it forces another method to exit. So what you're saying is that Ruby having blocks is not strictly speaking functional. They don't behave like a function. They don't get their own level on the stack and then return back 
right back from where they were called, like Josh said. So can I ask you another question then? And this is more along the lines of JavaScript. A lot of things are... Um, so you can pass functions. Functions are first-class citizens in JavaScript, so you can do a lot of functional things with it. But a lot of the way that the virtual machines are built is it's all event-driven. So if you're doing a map reduce, you do the map, and then you trigger a callback to do the reduce. Is that callback a side effect, strictly speaking, with regards to functional programming? That depends what happens in the side effect. Um, so then a callback is clearly passing a function. So it's functional in the sense that you're using functions as first-class values, which is cool. But what does your callback do? If it has side effects, then in the end, it's not strictly functional. But if it's just a mechanism to trigger the functionality in that function that you passed in, then it is? Yeah, so, so I, I, I don't know if it's, if it's really um, useful to pursue this, lot, this level of detail and distinction. Okay. It's like, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's just me being curious and trying to yeah. understand the deep nuances. But yeah, I, I think yeah, a lot of in it, the end, it's a religious argument. The, the observer <laughs> pattern, which callbacks are part of, um, where you're like, okay, 15 minutes later after you do your thing, have this side effect. Yeah, it's not strictly functional because it has side effects. Whoopee! It's still useful, and it's still useful to think of passing in this case a subroutine as a value. I, I to really avoid like that, that point I mean. Too. Where is it useful as opposed to is it functional? Right, right. Now, if, in the case of like map and filter, where you're passing a function in, there's an expectation there that that function is data in, data out. Mm -hmm. Because whatever you're passing control to when you hand it a function, it should be able to expect to call that function as many times as it, need it, as it needs in ways that you might not expect. So if you pass a function that has side effects, you don't know what you're going to get. Now, in the case of a callback, you do know what you're going to get because it explicitly says in the documentation, I will call this when I have a successful result. So there, there is an expectation that you can have side effects in that method. So in that sense, you just need to make a distinction of what is the function you're passing for. Is it okay to have side effects? Okay. Cool, cool. So so we had, uh, we had Gary Bernhardt on the show uh, wow, that was a while ago. Uh, that was uh, episode 67, and we're up to 115 now. Wow. Okay, so that was like a year ago. And and Gary uh, was on this kick where he talked about uh, functional core imperative shell. And I've yes. seen uh, I've seen Michael Feathers talk about something similar uh, with with like objects above functions below. And uh, yeah, and it seems like uh, you have a an evolving perspective on this that seems pretty similar that there's a place for functional methods or, or functions within object-oriented programs, and then there's a place for the, the state-changing mutability stuff going on. Absolutely, and, because in the end, if our program never changes the outside world, what good is it? Yeah, <laughs> right. You can, you can just um, use referential transparency to substitute the exited successfully uh, return code, right? <laughs> You can make you can make websites. You can totally make static websites because a web request is some information coming in that gets transformed to HTML going out. Mm -hmm. But right. if your website never if you never record any other information in a database, then your website never changes, yeah. and that's pretty boring. Yes. Okay. So so we've we've talked a bit about the functional part of things, 
but we haven't we haven't talked about sort of wetting that stuff with the state changing oop side of things. So you know, right. if I'm build, if I'm building something like a state machine to represent uh, like the flow of uh, some piece of data, th- like you're publishing an article and it needs to go through, it's a draft, it's being reviewed, it's being corrected, it's being published. There's a whole state that comes along with that. And then there's different, you get to make different decisions about what you can do based on its state. So, you know, if it's, if it's been, if it's passed through editing and it's approved, then you can publish it. So, so right. how do you, how, how do you like to, like to integrate those perspectives where you have this functional data in, data out, no side effects with dealing with changing the real world? Well, in this case, it's kind of like that database program that you're talking about where you're transforming data from one database into another. And at some point, you have to get data out of the original database. Then you do all your transformations, and then you put it in. So your transformations are the functional core, and you have an in at the beginning and an out at the end. And that's what I like my programs to look like. So if the document that you're talking about or the, the publishing is a website, then you might have a request that says update the state somehow. And at the beginning of that request, I'm going to get all the information I need from the database and from you. And then I'm going to do the transformation of that document into the new state. And you can do tra- state transformations and state machines without mutating objects if you choose. And I, I usually do choose. And then yeah, at the uh, end... Can, can, can you say something about how you do that? I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's just like... Sure, how, how, sure. How, how do you represent yeah. that changing state? So whenever you call a method on the object that would change its state, instead of altering that object, it returns you a new object that's a copy of the old one, but slightly updated in the way you needed. Okay, so if I had a document object, I could have a status uh, attribute of that object, and then if I'm moving it from draft to submitted, I would just change the, uh, the symbol there in that data structure and then pass that on to the next function. Something like that. I would return a new data structure, a new instance of the data structure with a different value in that status. Oh, great. Good clarification. But I would leave the other one alone. Just in case, it, that way if somebody else has a reference to the document in the previous status, it doesn't change out from under them. And there's a weird word for this. This is one of those, this is one of the worst functional programming terms because it means something completely different to, to me, to imperative programmers. And that's persistence. So when you have a data structure such that when you go to make a change on it, you actually get a new version back and the old one stays around in memory, that's called persistent. That's a persistent data structure, which is totally not what I thought the first 16 times I heard a functional programmer use that term. Because to me, persistent means it goes in a database, it goes on the file system, it stays around when the program exits. So watch out for that if you're reading functional <laughs> programming literature. Persistence just means I didn't mess you mess with your memory. I just created a new object in a new place in memory that I'm going to use from now on. So, yeah. so you you per, you persist in using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's like it's like the all the processes in in Elixir or Erlang. You know, the, like the, they're basically, they're a top level loop, except there is no looping in the language. What they do is, is they return a new version of like their whole, the whole process state. Well, they, they don't re- return, they recurse. They call themselves at the end with a new, with an updated version of their whole process state. Um, and that's, that's the way they, uh, 
they move forward on state. It's worth noting, though, that a lot of functional languages are heavily optimized to make that stuff really fast, make that style really yes. fast. Ruby is not, right. for better or for worse. Is that something that works better in JRuby? Have you noticed? Uh, I haven't. I haven't played with it enough. Instinctively, I would say that it's damn near impossible to optimize that kind of stuff in Ruby, just because you know there you 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 can't. There isn't the level of analysis that you can do that you know where the 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 VM can say, well, this this is never going to change. Um, oh, okay. You know, because because like the whole thing with per, you know persistent data structures, since since it knows that any any given iteration of a data structure is never going to change, then you know a VM can do all kinds of optimizations based on the on on you know the the idea of basically uh, like deltas. You know, the the new state is really just a delta off the old state. It shares most of its state with the old state. So, so yeah, so I don't basic, know. Basically, you're talking about Git as the internals of a language. Yes. Yeah. It, exactly. Yeah, Git has a lot of parallels to this. Totally. With its with its object storage. Um, there, now, on the other hand, you can do things in code in Ruby, like there's that hamster library mm-hmm. of immutable collections, and then you can you can write your classes to share state between mm-hmm. instances. So yeah. it can be done, but yeah, it is it is not native. And as far as JRuby, garbage collection is a big part of this. Because you wind up with a lot of little objects being created over and over. So efficient garbage collection is going to help whether JRuby has more efficient garbage collection. It sounds good. Mm-hmm. Well, well, it definitely does uh, versus earlier versions of, of MRI. I think MRI's GC is getting definitely getting better. I, have, I haven't, uh, haven't seen any good benchmarks, though. And we all know how good benchmarks are. <laughs> So, uh, so do we have anything left on our list here? Be lazy. Good thing we left that one for the end. Ah, yeah. Functional gives you the opportunity to do some things lazy because when you're passing around actions, you don't have to get all excited and take every possible action just to pass in the parameters. But the interesting part about lazy, uh, well, there's, there's two things. One is just the practical method of when you have a lazy stream, when you're reading from a gigantic file one line at a time, instead of reading the whole thing in, then you can do tasks that you just couldn't do without lazily processing that file as you need it. Uh, the, the other interesting piece that's, in terms of abstraction, is more interesting to me. It lets you separate what to do from when to stop. So you can establish what you want to do, but then... You only, for instance, if you're processing the lines in a file and doing some transformation on each of them, you only pull as many of those lines as you need to. And you decide where to stop in a different piece of your code than the piece that reads from the file. Right. So, so your, your data processing logic is separated from your control flow logic. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I, I love that you can do like infinite lazy lists. Uh, Haskell has those. And... Um, it, it, and that's great for what you're talking about. There's a, there's, I think a simpler uh, example in Ruby, you know, for people who are familiar with Ruby of just blocks are lazy evaluation that you know, you're, it's deferred execution. And if you, so if you look at like a hash that has um, like, you're specifying a block as the, um, that you're using hash fetch and you pass in a block as, Oh, here's the thing to do. If, you don't have a value and you don't have to calculate what that default value is until you need it. Ah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. In Scala, we would call that a by name parameter. 
because you pass in a block of code of how to get the parameter instead mm-hmm. of pre-calculating it. So I guess my question is, is if you have an exceptionally large file, you, you gave the example 10 gigabyte file, 3 gigabytes of memory, is there a good way to do that in Ruby? Get this chunk of the file? The lazy enumerable, the lazy enumerable does a lot for you. In terms of the actual file I.O., I don't know. I haven't tried it. I should. Yeah, well, I should try I that. What, exactly is, what exactly are you trying to do? So if you were trying to read it. Read in, in a file one. Yeah, a file that's too large for memory. So, so, so you can do all sorts of streaming processing yeah. in, in Ruby. It's, you know, just the CSV uh, stuff, you can stream through a CSV file row by row and uh, you know, just pass in a block for what to do on each row. Right. And then, and then stream the output of that into a file. Right. I mean, so, so there's, there's like streaming, and then I guess there's laziness, which, is, which you can often derive from streaming, especially with enumerators. Okay, so we solved that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things. It's I'm sorry. It's one of those things that it's hard to talk about in the abstract. Yeah. Um, it's it's hard to talk about without code in front of you, and it's also really hard to talk about unless you have a concrete problem in front of you. Like I've done a lot of of streaming processing and, and lazy processing, but it's hard to just sort of hand wave and, and talk talk through it. Yeah. No, um, but- I'm not really convinced that that the lazy enumerators are actually a big part of it. I mean, they're good for chaining. Um, yeah, I, love I, I feel like that's what they added is is easier chaining. But I mean, the ability to do lazy stuff uh, has been around long before the the lazy enumerators came along. Because I mean, the an, an enumerator is a lazy it's a lazy construct, not to be confused with enumerable. But an an enumerator is a lazy construct. Oh. Always has been. Um, right in Java, it's an iterator versus an iterable, mm-hmm. and it's equally confusing. <laughs> okay, so so can one of you explain the difference? Ooh, ooh, I love this one. So go for it. An iterator or an enumerator is a source of data. You can call next on it, but it's stateful. Every time you call next, you're probably going to get something different back, and you can never go backwards. You're always going to get the next thing, and you get each thing exactly once. Although an you can call rewind on the ones in Ruby. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't have that. Yeah, results not guaranteed. Exactly. <laughs> I thought. Yeah, I thought iterable. Implementation. I thought iterable was what what you feel like when you don't get enough sleep. I don't know. We can ask Abdi that one. Oh, har har. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> All right. So, so an enumerable or an iterable in Java or in Scala is something that can give you the a stream of data over and over. You can get enumerators out of enumerables as many times as you want. The enumerable has all of its data and you can process it over and over. The enumerator, just once. Yeah, although it's it's even a little bit fuzzier in Ruby just because um, a lot of exhaustible data sources, I guess you could say, are enumerable in Ruby. For instance, um, you can, I mean, IO is enumerable. You know, you can, it's got each on it. And, but if it's, if it's plugged into a socket, well, you're only going to get, you know, whatever comes over that socket, you're only going to get it once. You're not going to be able to go back. But I'm now I'm just being mean and, and uh, coming up with obscure exceptions. That's okay. I'm learning something. (laughs) So the, the important part to know the one, the way this has bitten me, especially in Scala several times is the interface on iterator and iterable is very similar. And I can filter, for instance, over either one. But if I filter over an enumerator and say I take the first 10 of them, 
then that enumerator is like, it's corrupted, it's gone. I can't perform a different filter on the same enumerator and expect it to basically repeat all its results so that I can filter over them again. But an enumerable, that totally works on. You can reuse enumerables, with the exception of this crazy socket thing. Enumerables, anyway, that, that behave as giving the same enumerator over and over. You can reuse those, but never reuse an iterator mm. or enumerator. Yeah, that makes sense. I think, I think Java and I guess Scala draw a slightly harder line between those two concepts, but yeah. That would be consistent with the whole type safety. Yeah, you know? <laughs> the whole, yeah. The whole nature of the language. Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm a little curious because you only had a half hour. It seemed like there, there were, there could have been a little bit more that you could have talked about. If, if there was anything else you could have added to the talk, what would you have added? At the end of the talk, I talked about how to perform the data transformation with chaining and completely immutable and functional style, but I didn't show any of the implementation of that. I've since coded it up in my 0.1 version gem, which I called Aqueductron. And a few months ago, I presented this at the local user group with construction paper slides, which were popular. And Aqueductron was, was really fun. This is an example of, as Avdi points out, this is probably not going to perform well in Ruby, but we can keep things completely immutable and lazy as we pipe data into information. And the best part is, I wish I could show you, it does ASCII art to illustrate the pipes. Um, do, do, so do, if I... Do, do, you have a, do you have like a video of that or, any, or a screen grab or anything that we could look at? I'll post the slides, probably to my blog, I guess. That sounds great. But, but yeah, if I could go further, I would go into the different ways that we can combine laziness and immutability to process data and information. And it's, it's the really interesting thing is when you take the data flow and you start mutating the flow based on the data. And then the code is actually changing itself, in my view. And still, it's immutable. Without changing its state, it's changing the flow of the data through the code. I'll write that up for you. Yeah, that'd awesome. be awesome. So, so I got one last thing, and that's um, you, you opened your talk with a, a Sherlock Holmes reference. And I, re you know, when I was a kid, I got a book of like the complete Sherlock Holmes collection, like everything. And I think the first stu first story in it is a study in Scarlet. And I think that's where um, where uh, where that little little interaction between Holmes and Watson happens, right? Was that a study in Scarlet? Oh. Is it? Because I looked for it and I couldn't find it, but I remembered that story. It stuck with me for years about which, how Holmes which just wants these yeah. irrelevant facts out of his head. Yeah, yeah, where what where what yeah, Holmes says Holmes says I don't care whether the whether the earth goes around the sun or vice versa. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah I, I have I, a limited amount of my I have a limited something like I have a limited amount of space in my brain attic. And yeah. uh, uh, I, I shall prompt Yeah, I shall promptly have to forget that. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Which is why I don't feel bad about not remembering the results of my investigations into lambdas and blocks because I did the investigation. I wrote it up. I promptly abstracted it to always use lambdas when I have a choice. And then I let the rest of it go so I can learn something new. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Well, it's just like you remembered the, the, the important quote from the story, but you didn't care which story it was in. So. Yeah. So that works too. But yeah, I, I love that. I think that, um, yeah, I, I learned that when I was a kid, and that's kind of stuck with me for a long time. So, what do I care about remembering? Yeah. So, 
Good. So, Jessica, before we wrap up, where are you going to be speaking? So, in September, I'm at Windy City Rails doing functional principles in Ruby again. That one's going to be really awesome. It looks like it's going to be a great conference. Other than that, in August, I'm at PyCon Canada. And then at Strange Loop, I'm doing a workshop on Git, but Strange Loop is sold out, so that doesn't help you. And finally, in November, I get to go to Sweden again and speak at Oradev on both functional principles and the counterpoint to that, the its flip side, which is object-oriented development principles taken to other languages, including Ruby. Oh, nice. Awesome. Uh, looking forward to seeing that one. Are they and uh, and and are, are a lot of those going to show up in video? Do you think? I have no idea. Well, we can keep our fingers crossed. Okay, yeah. thanks. <laughs> it, it seems to be more and more of a thing to record the talks and publish them, so we can hope. So, so cool, cool. Are 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 we uh, are we ready for picks, Chuck? Yeah, we're we're definitely at that time. So, Avdi, why don't you start us off with picks this week? Uh, <laughs> sleep. <laughs> My pick is sleep. I seem to recall it being good. <laughs> <laughs> um, Once upon a time, I enjoyed it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, well done, sir. <laughs> Josh, what are your picks? Okay, uh, okay. So, so uh, my first pick is um, I'm I'm going to pretend to be James to do this pick, and I'm picking the regular expression crossword puzzle site. <laughs> which I actually uh, introduced James to yesterday, <laughs> but it's a, uh, yeah, this is great. It's a, it's, it's crossword puzzles and the clues for the rows and columns are regular expressions. And then you, it's a logic puzzle to figure out how, how they um, interact, you know, the rows and the columns interact at the, at the squares. And then you figure out what the, what the crossword puzzle solution is. So that's, wow. I, I saw that and I was that like pretty astounded. <laughs> That is the best criticism of regular expressions I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible or awesome, you decide. Yeah. It's a logic puzzle to figure out how they interact. Yes, programming is all about solving puzzles. I prefer to solve business puzzles. <laughs> Pretty cool. Okay. Um, right, and then... Uh, in keeping with our, our philosophy that picks are things that made your life awesome, uh, I'm picking JRuby. And it's probably been picked before, but it's just, I, this is the first time I'm using it in anger on a project, and it's going really great. I'm, it, it's, you know, doing, doing multi-threading in JRuby is awesome. Uh, so, uh, so yay, JRuby, and uh, thanks to the whole JRuby team for all that great work. And then I have a, a, a pick that's relevant to our topic. And uh, so Al, Alan Kay, you know, we all know him as the uh, man who defined the term object-oriented programming um, and invented small talk and, and the entire world of computing that we use today. Uh, so, he, so what he's up to these days is he's at this, um, like, Viewpoints Research Institute, I think is what it's called. And, they're, and part of the work they're doing is this system called COLA, which is a combined object lambda architecture, I believe is what it means. And I, I haven't had too much time to dig into this, but if you're a language nerd, uh, this is probably uh, terribly exciting stuff. And what, what Cola is about is that you have the object side of things, which is the mutable state, and you have the lambda side of things, which is the functional programming. And 
they're duels of each other. And so they're building, they're just building a, a language architecture where those things lean on each other successfully and interact constructively rather than get in each other's way. So it, it's, it's all sort of like academic research right now, but uh, it's interesting to read about. So that that's it for me. Awesome. So uh, last week I had a pick all ready to go and I forgot to pick it and it would have been much more appropriate last week than this week, but we did talk about functional programming. So this week I'm going to be, I'm going to pick the mostly Erlang podcast. Um, it's hosted by my friend Zach Kesson and uh, a bunch of other people. It's, it's formatted like Ruby rogues. We've actually inspired a few podcasts of this format and that's one of them. And it's, it's pretty good. And they talk a lot about uh, Erlang. They also did an episode on Elixir, and so it's kind of interesting to see it coming from the Erlang side as opposed to the Ruby side and uh, what their take on it is. So um, that's the only pick I really have this week. And uh, I'll throw it over to Jessica to do her picks. All right. So I've got an article and a book and someone I think you should follow on Twitter. So the article is it's on firstround.com and it's Chris Gale talking about the hidden cost of every feature we add to the application. The title of the article is The One Cost Engineers and Product Managers Don't Consider, and that cost is complexity. Because if you've ever noticed, as we write our applications, it starts off and we're super fast and we can do things really quickly, and then the bigger our application gets, the harder it is to add what seems like it used to be easy functionality. And that's because every feature that we put in increases the complexity of our application. So my new theory is whenever we estimate um, a feature, there's the implementation cost, the upfront cost of getting it in there, which is all anybody thinks about now. I think we also need to consider a complexity cost that affects the multiplier that we will apply to every estimate in the future because this feature has just made our lives that much harder forever and ever. So, great article. There's the link. Uh, my second pick, if you are serious about learning functional programming, the best book I've found is by Runar Bjarnason and Paul Chisano, and it's called Functional Programming in Scala. Now, the Scala part is kind of ancillary. Runar uses Scala to make the points, but he's really teaching the philosophy of functional programming of immutable state and of everything is an evaluation. And I think it's a fantastic book for that, the best I've seen. It's in early access, but it it's great. Awesome. And finally, if I were going to follow one person on Twitter, it would be Flow Change Sensei because he posts his own articles and links to articles that are really about having a life within work, personal growth within your team. And this is why I think that our agile development is going to change the world because slowly we're coming to recognize work relationships as valuable relationships. And from there we can only get better. Awesome. There's a scrum master. I want to send that uh, article to and just watch his head explode. (laughs) Anyway, well, thanks for coming. It was an excellent conversation and, Josh didn't even have to defend OO from the advances of functional programming, so. Oh, that I, I am not that's against not OO. <laughs> yeah, I, I came in here expecting a war. <laughs> Disappointed. 
We took away Josh's launch codes. <laughs> well, you should have told me if you wanted to fight him. Ah, no, he makes too much sense. <laughs> Darn logic. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks again for coming, and uh, we'll catch you all next week. Yeah, thanks, Jessica. Thank Bye. you very much. Thank you very much.